God tells Samuel two things. One, I've got a dude picked out for you whose express purpose is to do what? To save my people from the hand of the Philistines. That, that, that's what this person is going to do. And we know, secondly, who this person is. God is speaking about whom here? Who's supposed to be doing this? Saul. Yeah, this is when God is talking to Samuel about Saul. Go anoint Saul. He is going to save my people from the hand of the Philistines. And so now before we go bagging on Saul this morning, Saul does do this to a point. Uh, He does, in his skirmishes with the Philistines, deliver them. In chapter 14, it's actually said of Saul that he routs a number of nations, including the Philistines. But when the time comes for perhaps the biggest clash between the Philistines and Israel, Saul's nowhere to be found. Let's turn to chapter 17 to see this clash. If you've not yet guessed what it is that I'm talking about when we think about the biggest conflict between Israel and the Philistines, you can probably see it Yeah, in the header of your Bible, David and Goliath. Now, this is a story that makes for some pretty great junior church content, right? But let me encourage you to not just gloss over this story because of its familiarity to us, but to sit here perhaps with uh, new eyes and just appreciate this story for so much more than being a mismatch or uh, an underdog story, a story about a teenager who kills a 10-foot-tall man. No, this is about so much more than what we would call even a David and Goliath story in sports. One of the things that we're going to look at this morning is that this is a case study of David, a person who has described as a man after God's own heart, and what that person does. Uh, Another thing that this story teaches us is not about, again, this mismatch, but about a great and powerful God. Let's read the first 11 verses. I'll read them, and we'll go through and make some comments as we read the text here. So, chapter 17, verse 1, we read, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succo, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succo and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, 
then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now the author of 1 Samuel does a great job of setting the setting here in this passage of scripture. As you're reading this, in your mind's eye, you can see these two armies encamped on either side of a valley. You've got the Philistines on one mountain and Israel on another, and all the lights on the stage, if you will, are pointed towards what's happening in the center. And kind of through the smoke, if you will, stands this giant of a man. You can see his description in the text here. And even if you knew nothing about him prior to this, if this was your first time ever being exposed to the story of David and Goliath, you'd be reading through this and you'd be like, whoa, this dude is intense. Like, I don't even know how big a cubit is. I'm not sure what a shekel uh, is equivalent to in weight. But you don't really even need to know these things to understand that Goliath is intimidating. He is this imposing figure. And I think that's kind of the point. I mean, who else in scripture gets a physical description quite like this? Of David, we're told two things, right? That he's ruddy and handsome. Of Saul, we're told his only physical description we know of is that he's tall. And yet Goliath, this enemy, this Philistine, gets like three verses dedicated to his size, to his armor. This is unheard of for a biblical character to know so much about their physical description. And that is the point. We should be left thinking, whoa, this dude, whoever he is, poses a huge threat to Israel. He is physically imposing, and you're going to have to go through Goliath to get deliverance if you're an Israelite. And that's part of the problem, because Goliath isn't interested in, like, your standard warfare, right? He wouldn't be as big of a problem if you were able to, like, take him out as an archer from, like, safe distance within his spear. Goliath's not interested in you hiding, you know, behind a shield and shooting an arrow at him. We read the text, and he's like, no, you send a man... And we'll settle this like men one-on-one here. And, you know, he's obviously at this point got the size advantage, the strength advantage. His armor is imposing. It's like, whoa. And not only is he huge, not only does he want this man-to-man combat, he's a bit of a trash talker, too. I mean, he's got, like, the full package of just annoying things about him. Look at verse um, 10 again. The Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. And while this seems to be just kind of a mockery of the ranks of Israel, Goliath is defying them. There's actually a progression that takes place here in the text that helps us to realize that there's more going on here than Goliath just name-calling. 
There's more going on here than him just trying to intimidate the army. David actually identifies this progression of insults for us. Let's look now at verse 26. We'll jump ahead in the story just a little bit. Verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should what? Defy the armies of the living God. You see how David takes what was just said and he accentuates it a little bit more? Now Goliath isn't just defying the ranks of Israel. Goliath is defying who? God. Yeah, look one more time at verse 45. It, it can't get any more clear here. We'll read just the last sentence of verse 45. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. See what David is saying here? Goliath, in defying the ranks of Israel, isn't just defying the army. You defy Israel, you defy God. That's a problem. That's a mistake, right? Who is Goliath? It's one thing to defy an army. It is another thing entirely to defy God. And there is going to be a point in this story. Do not challenge the God of Israel. Do not shake your fist at him. Do not try to intimidate his people. God comes to their aid in the person of David. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Look back, if you will, at verse 11. How does all of Israel respond when Goliath comes out and issues his challenge? It's not just all Israel, it's Saul. They hear the words of this Philistine and they're dismayed. They're greatly afraid and everyone's tough until Goliath challenges you. And then you're like, yikes, okay, I'm running back to my tent. This is wild. One commentator that I read made this point. Do you remember in the previous chapter when Samuel is going through the brothers of David? And he comes to Eliab and God says, no. And he goes down the line, no, 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 no. What does God tell David? Why has he said no to these other people? Do you remember? Man looks where? On the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And is this not like exhibit A of man looking on the outward appearance here? All these Israelites, Saul included, are looking at this outward appearance. There's been some considerable verse space dedicated to Goliath's outward experience, and they are afraid. They're terrified. And yet in verse 12, we are introduced to this man after God's own heart, to David. So let's read verse 12 down to 16. We read this. Now David was the son of of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. 
Now all of this kind of serves as background information to what David is doing here. He's kind of like a supplier. He runs back and forth from his dad to his brothers and gets news of the battle and delivers goods. It, this is all background information, but we do see one thing that's particularly noteworthy, that this little show that Goliath has been doing didn't just happen once. It's been happening for 40 days. Okay, can you imagine morning and evening, this giant of a man coming out and issuing this challenge for someone to come fight him? And honestly, that's a really awkward time for this to be going on. Like, can you imagine 40 days of this going on and Goliath still doesn't have someone who wants to take him up on it? The wheels were kind of turning in my mind, and I'm like, why does Goliath get to set the parameters for battle here? Like, why haven't, like, 30 dudes, like, put their heads together and said, man, this has been going on for four weeks now. Why don't we just take him out in a wave <laughs> and get this over with? Or why don't we just do traditional warfare and our whole army go up against the Philistines and it's not that intimidating anymore? Why does Goliath get to set the parameters for what's happening here? For 40 days, this is happening. It's just almost an awkward amount of time. 80 times now, Goliath's come out and still nothing. Like, okay, we got to get the ball rolling on a battle here. That, th those are more just my comments on the thing. But this is what scripture tells us is happening. These people are terrified. We'll see that in this next passage. Look at verse is 17. And Jesse said to David, his son, take your brothers, an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to battle, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Forty days later, Goliath has done this 80 times now, people are still running back terrified every time he shows his face. There's this fear that has just pervaded the camp of Israel. And we come to verse 25, and the story really starts to take a turn here. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to, here's our word again, defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And here in this verse, we're introduced to some of the rewards that Saul has put out for whomever will take on Goliath. And I guess if he wins, he gets three things here. He gets riches. Uh, he gets one of Goliath's, or excuse me, one of Saul's daughters to marry. Then we have this phrase that his father's house will be made free in Israel. Now, I'm not really sure if this is like tax-free or free of some sort of indentured service, but I want you to think back to what God told 
Samuel, and really the people that a king would do to them. He would make them what? His slaves. And here, one of the rewards is to be free. For your father's house to be free in Israel. And it's just kind of ironic to me that what God had said would happen to the people of Israel under a king is coming true. They're slaves. And so now one of the rewards that they get is freedom of some kind. Could be just a tax freedom. But still, they're, they're obligated to a king in a way that they haven't been before. But the obvious question here, after reading this verse, is why is Saul the one putting forth the reward and not stepping up to fight this guy himself? Right? Like, remember the passage of scripture we looked at at the beginning of this? In chapter 9, Saul told Samuel, I got a man picked out who is going to what? Save you from the Philistines. And Saul, he's just kind of putting the bill for someone else to do it. Where is he? He's been appointed by God. He's been equipped. And really, I think what this does is highlight what has been drawn to our attention several times now, this decline of Saul as he becomes more and more disobedient and strays from the Lord and this rise of David. And we might think, well, Saul's the king. You know, we got to protect him at all costs. He's kind of the guy that we most want to look out for. And yet here's David, a chapter prior, he's been anointed the next king of Israel. And he's not trying to preserve his life. He, he's not trying to watch out for number one. He is chomping at the bit to go fight Goliath. God's man fights. This is a little bit, I'll admit, at the forefront of speculation. But had Saul been obedient to the Lord, we might be reading the story of Saul and Goliath. Because God equipped him at the outset with a spirit. And he gave him even these men around him who God changed their hearts as well. And yet Saul forfeited the plans that God had for him because of his disobedience. And I think we could tease that out even a little further. And I know we're still in the realm of a bit of speculation. But I do just wonder if perhaps people get to the point where God says, I had plans for you. I had set you apart to do something for me and my kingdom. But you have forfeited that right because of your disobedience. I'll choose someone else. How scary would that be for God to say that of us? Where we have just gone so astray from him that he says, you know what, I had these great things in mind for you, but I gotta go with someone else now to accomplish my purposes. Just so something to think about. Verse 26, we'll read it. David says to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? and takes away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. You can see the wheels are starting to turn in David's mind. He's observing what Goliath is doing, and he's like, all right, well, what happens to the guy who takes him on? Is there, you know, he finds out about this reward, but look at how he refers to Goliath here, he calls him the uncircumcised Philistine, drawing attention to the fact that he's a pagan. 
especially as it stands in contrast to the armies of the living God. And David understands something that no one else in the text has been able to put together at this point. The other men in the story see this as a very surface level, Goliath is intimidating our army. He is trying to embarrass the nation of Israel. David sees what's going on below the surface when he uses terms like uncircumcised Philistine and armies of the living God. David sees what's really happening here, that this man is defying not Israel, but God. This is, there is a spiritual dynamic or element to the story of David and Goliath here. Verse 28, we see David as a bit of a detractor. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he says, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David says, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Well, just briefly, you can't help but wonder if Eliab here is still a little bit jealous at being passed over as king. Right? He's the first. He's the oldest. You would think that maybe he'd be selected to be king. And he's just treating David with contempt here. I mean, you can see, you know, with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Like, leave the fighting to the men. Don't you have a job to do back in the wilderness with the sheep? Kind of a strange interaction, but it doesn't derail David. I mean, he's still going, he turns away, and he's speaking in the same way as he was before, and the people are answering him. Verse 31. When the words that David had spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and, the, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Saul is guilty of looking on the outward appearance here, is he not? Again, the previous chapter, we were making this point that man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Saul's looking at the outward appearance, and he's like, the only guy who's volunteered is a teenager. Uh, you're a youth. It's estimated by scholars, and there's actually good reason for this estimate, that David is anywhere between 15 and 19 years old, so not even an adult by our, our standards. And Saul's like, yikes, we're in trouble if a teenager's coming to you know, fight. You're going to fight a guy who, from your age, has been training for war. <laughs> this doesn't make sense on paper. But David shows off what I'll call his resume here in verse 34 and 35. But David says to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. David's fought a lion and a bear, and he's a teenager. And he tells us here that if the animal that he saves the sheep from turns on him, he grabs that thing by the beard and kills it. Like, David's no stranger to hand-to-hand -hand combat here. I mean, what Goliath wants, David's like, yeah, I've killed lions and bears before. This dude is no slouch. He is pretty intense. Look at verse 36 and 37. We see 
Perhaps even more importantly about David, though, this. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Who does David here give credit to for his defeat of the lion and the bear? The Lord. Yeah. Who does David say is going to deliver Goliath into his hand? It's the Lord. David is very aware of who it is that has preserved him, of who it is that will deliver him. David is aware that it is God. David trusts God when people like Saul are looking at the mismatch here and they're like, a youth, a giant. I'm not seeing how this adds up. And David says, the Lord is going to deliver me. And I can't help but stop here and think, rather make this observation about David. Think about David, the shepherd, right? Who in the wilderness, when he sees his sheep being attacked, he throws caution to the wind and delivers the sheep from the enemy, from the lion and the bear, the thing that is out to harm it. Here's David again on a battlefield this time, and he sees God's people who are being verbally abused and intimidated and this fear that is being struck into their heart. And David, again, does not stand idly by as someone attacks God's people. He stands up and delivers them, much like he has done already as a shepherd for the helpless, for the people who are not defending themselves. And is it not a great picture of a descendant of David, whom we also call a shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep? Do you not see how this is a glimpse of the ministry of Jesus here? Our good, great shepherd? Can we not see how David is a man after God's own heart in defending the helpless, the weak, the vulnerable? This is what David does. Let's look at David's weapons here. Verse 38 Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these. I've not tested them. So David put them off, and he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Just a brief comment here. The wording of this text seems to be pretty particular here. From the top down, we see David trying on this helmet of bronze, and then a coat of mail, and then a sword. If you look back at the description of Goliath, that's how he's described. He's got the helmet of bronze. He's got the coat of mail. He's got the weapons. You see how these two guys are stacked up next to each other. David puts aside traditional weaponry, and instead he takes what's familiar to him, a staff 
a handful of stones. Verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. You can imagine Goliath here, he's waited 40 days for someone to man up and come out and fight him. Probably just makes out this figure coming off in the distance here. Everyone looks small at a distance. As he gets closer, Goliath's like, insulted. Are, are you kidding me? I've waited over a month for you to send who I presume is your best warrior, and it's a teenager. And he's not even armed to the teeth. He's got, like, sticks, shepherd's gear. And that really what he interprets as just an insult to him turns into anger. And he starts cursing David by his gods. And you can imagine, I mean, this is a pretty high emotion situation. Someone, one of these two men, is going to be dead within the next two minutes here. Uh, I mean, this is going to happen pretty quick. So you can imagine, there's a lot of pent-up energy. This has been drawn on for 40 days here. Goliath's like, all right, we're doing this. I'm going to feed you to the birds. You're dead. Look how David responds. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David says, you come at me with weapons, and I'm coming at you with the Lord of hosts on my side. Now who's mismatched? Right? The mismatch seems pretty clear to us. A shield and weapons and a spear are nothing against the Lord of hosts. And this is the point. Verse 46 and 47 are the hinge on which this whole passage turns. This is something we need to consider with the remaining time we have left. Look at verse 46. David says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this assembly may know that God, excuse me, that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Notice with me, David lists two reasons that God is going to give him the victory this day. What are those reasons? Look at the text. The first reason is that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and secondly, that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and with spear. So let's just really quick unpack those two things, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. What does that mean? We saw Goliath in this paragraph mention his gods. Every nation has a God. What is so important about there being a God in Israel? Well, this phrase shows up a couple of other times in Scripture. One of those, Joshua actually says this. I believe early on in Joshua, he's recounting history, and he says, listen, 
God parted the Jordan River for us to cross here. And before that, God parted the Red Sea for us to cross. And that is for the express purpose, let me read this so I get it right, that the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. God did those things so that the other nations would know that God is mighty. This language shows up again in 1 Kings 18, what we know of as Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You've got these hundreds of false prophets who spend six hours, maybe more, cutting themselves, dancing around this altar, trying to get Baal's attention to no avail. And then Elijah dumps water on the altar and he prays this simple prayer. He says this. Actually, I don't have the wording of the thing. I'll paraphrase it. Elijah says this. Lord, answer my prayer today that these people would know that you are God in Israel and that Baal is not. The point of God delivering David in this story is to prove the power, the authority, the legitimacy of the God of Israel above all other gods. Other gods do not deliver their combatants. Other gods do not answer prayer. Other odds do not, gods do not come to the aid of their worshipers, but our God does. He equipped David, and he can use a teenager with no battle experience to defeat this giant of a man for whom 40 days people have been running back to their tents every time he shows his face. Secondly, first, that the earth may know there's a God in Israel. Second, that the assembly knows that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. I don't think David is trying to be cute here and say, but he does save with a sling, and then he rattles off a rock and a stone and, and hits David in the head. I think the point David is trying to make is that God does not use traditional means to deliver people. There's a number of passages we can consider here, uh, one in particular that I think we could all probably quote somewhat. I think it's in Proverbs. It says, a horse is prepared for battle, but victory belongs to who? The Lord. Uh, another psalmist says, For in my bow I do not trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes, talking about God, and have put to shame those who hate us. Let me ask you this. Of the people present at this battle, who most needs to learn that God doesn't use a sword and a spear to save them? I actually think that it's Israel. I think they need to learn this lesson that God does not use conventional means to deliver his people. They've been looking and waiting for someone with a sword and a spear to come and get rid of this problem that shows up every twice a day. God says, I don't work that way. I don't need what you perceive to be these weapons or symbols of power to deliver you. I can use a faithful servant. Israel's going to need to learn this lesson repeatedly as time progresses and they are dwarfed by other nations and other armies. They're going to have to remember God does not have to use a sword and a spear to deliver you. 
He's powerful enough to do it other ways. He's creator. Let me say this, as I alluded to at the beginning. The point of this story and David of Goliath is not to show off the athletic prowess of David or this mismatch, this underdog story. The point of this story is to highlight the Lord of hosts and his power and his deliverance of his people. And if you can't read this story and see God, then you're missing something because he's here and he delivers his people. I'm not going to read the rest of this chapter for sake of time, but we know that David goes on to kill Goliath, lops his head off, you know, actually ends up taking it to Saul. Saul is, you know, rewards him. The story ends all nice from our perspective, but I would just ask, has the point, the stated point of this story impacted our hearts this morning? where we know that there is a God. Not that I doubt any of us here this morning doubt that God is real. We're here at Sunday school, I get that. But do we doubt God's power? That the God of 1 Samuel 17, who used an unlikely individual to overcome this fearful opponent is the same God that we are here worshiping this morning. And secondly, that he uses unconventional means to deliver people. Israel was looking for the sword and the spear, and God gave them David. Again, I'll tease this out to a couple thousand years later. Israel, again, is looking for a sword and spear to deliver them from Roman oppression. And God sends a lamb instead. God doesn't work how we're accustomed to or how we would draw things up. He's not bound by our sense of uh, symbols of power or what we think can deliver us. God uses unconventional things to deliver his people. And he, this Lord of hosts that David refers to, deserves our praise and our worship this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we're grateful for this story which highlights your power, your glory, Please use us, your humble servants, in your purpose for uh, all believers, Lord, in, in the evangelism of this world. Help us to reveal this Lord of hosts to our friends and neighbors and show them that you are powerful, you are in control, you deliver, and you've delivered us from our greatest opponent in our sin, from the consequences of our sin. Lord, help us to never let that truth escape us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.